From GreenBiz Group, welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower, this week in Anaheim, California. On this week's edition, planting the seeds to reduce deforestation. How Cliff Bar influenced a key supplier to up its sustainability efforts. How companies and investors can navigate the ESG disclosure maze. And meet the rock star Silicon Valley journalist who will be driving our transportation coverage. We're going from 0 to 60 this week on 350. It's March 9th, 2018. Welcome to Green Biz 350. Heather Clancy is doing a deep dive, well, in the ocean somewhere. And joining me this week is Green Biz Director of Strategic Programs, Shauna Rappaport. Hey, Shauna. Hi, Joel. Glad you're holding down the fort there in Oakland. Thanks for the invitation. It's really great to have you. We, we worked, worked together a long time now, and I love having you on this as a guest, and it's great to have you as the co-host. I know most Green Biz readers see that you write every other week the Verge newsletter and you host our uh, Accelerate programs on stage and do a lot of other things uh, on, on uh, at our events as well. Maybe for, for people who don't yet know you, give a little little background about how long you've been around and what you're doing. Oh, thanks for asking. Yeah, well, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for the invitation to co-host with you. Um, as a matter of fact, just celebrated my five years with the Green Biz team a couple weeks ago. And I suppose in some ways, Director of Strategic Programs is a nice catch-all for, uh, you know, wearing lots of hats across the organization, but certainly been focused the last last five years on really helping to grow and scale Verge, although my tendrils touch other parts of the organization. Um, you mentioned Accelerate. That's been a big joy during my my time at, at GreenBiz is helping to really build and grow and scale our Verge Accelerate program and really helping expand the whole innovation ecosystem at our, at our Verge events. I've um, helped really to build and, and also scale our summit series, which we've talked about before on the podcast, our sort of VIP events within the events at our Verge events and, and also at GreenBiz that really um, bring together strategic groups of people to problem solve and identify solutions to specific challenges and market opportunities opportunities and um, do a number of other things sort of around the experiential aspects of our of our events. And, and today, I'm glad to be joining you on the podcast. And you also uh, are being called on because of your great stage presence and, and knowledge of industry and ability to, to facilitate groups that you do at the Summit Series at, at our Verge and Green Biz events. Um, to go outside and do some of those kinds of things for other organizations. So very recently, you uh, spent a day with the city of Palo Alto, California uh, in green buildings. Talk a little bit about what was going on there. Yeah, well, that was a really unique experience and, a, and an, an, an honor to be invited by the city of Palo Alto to basically come and spend the day with a group of about 50 or 60 people, a very diverse group, kind of like our summits, our Verge summits, which convene you know folks from within the city, um, private sector allies in this case, because it was the Green Building Summit, folks from um, architecture, developers. And the goal was really to look at the state, the city's ambitious uh, climate agenda, particularly how they're going to get to their 80% reduction in greenhouse gas emissions by 2030. And the role specifically of the built environment, but also everything from energy, emissions, water, materials. We talked about indoor air quality. And, you know, basically I facilitated a, a day-long session that was really helping this group of stakeholders explore and come to as much consensus as possible about the level of ambition that they wanted to see the city taking in each of these topic areas. So we kind of dove deep into a really, um, really comprehensive zero net energy roadmap that they uh, developed in collaboration with DNVGL, um, and, and ultimately at the end of the day um, came out with a, a technical advisory committee whose role is to now, moving forward into their 2019 policy cycle, um, take some of the insights from that day and, and put it into action. In fact, I, I had the opportunity to follow up with Michelle Flaherty, who's the assistant city manager, um, to talk a little bit about her perspective about the day, the goals, the insights, and, and, and what comes next. Here's, here's what she had to say. Michelle, talk a little bit about the city of Palo Alto's goal for last week's Green Building Summit. Why, why bring everyone together in this, this context? 
Well, we did something similar uh, three years ago, and it's time for us to renew our ordinances. We, we update our codes in, on a three-year cycle to align with the state of California. So it was time to do it again, and we had such great success the last time around. We wanted to make sure that we continued the commitment we started then to the community to make sure that we're inclusive, that our stakeholders have a seat at the table and a voice in what we're doing so that this really feels like a partnership between the city staff, the development community, the building community, the environmental community, and bringing all of those voices together so that we can find common ground to really see where we can continue to stretch our, our goals in bringing sustainability into how we're looking at green building in the city of Palo Alto. Well, I certainly feel like, you know, based on my personal experience, we, we really achieved a lot of that. I'd love to hear some of your personal reflections, just, you know, how did it go? What did you learn? Do you feel like, you know, we had a very ambitious agenda, agenda and just one day to get through it, do you feel like we, we made progress as a group towards some of those goals? I was really impressed at the commitment to collaboration that all of our community partners brought to the conversation. I mean, not everyone has the same agenda in this milieu that we're playing in, and yet everyone was willing to commit to a, a, an idea that we get that we're trying to move forward on this, and so how do we do it in a way that makes sense from each stakeholders' perspective. And so I was really impressed, even when we were talking about things that, that created concerns for some of our partners, they were very constructive in how they talked about those concerns. And, and I think part of what made that possible is bringing a process that commits that people are going to be heard and that they're going to be invited back to continue to have a seat at the table. And so I think that creates a shared sense of ownership so that instead of being outside the tent, throwing rocks in at the people who are inside the tent, we're all inside the tent together and we all have a shared sense of responsibility for the final outcome. Mm, beautifully put. One, one final question for you. You know, the city of Palo Alto has been for several years now on the path of really just stepping even more so into its climate leadership, setting ambitious goals. Knowing what you know now, what, you know, what advice might you give to other cities who are looking to set ambitious agendas and how to, how to get where the city of Palo Alto has gotten and to, to do it faster? I would say um, don't be overwhelmed by how heavy a lift it can feel like at the front end. When we first started down this path, it, it, it's, it felt like a very ambitious goal to a lot of the staff and a lot of the members of our community. And you know, if, if we, as we broke it into bite-sized pieces and we created a sustainability action plan, we were able to, to carve it into incremental steps that were digestible for our community members and our staff who had to implement uh, some of these things. And, and I think once you carve it into bite-sized pieces, it really can be much more palatable to everybody, a lot less overwhelming. And then we look back and we think, wow, look at how much we've accomplished in a short period of time. So sometimes starting slow allows you to start fast. Mm. Well, I can't wait to check in next year and uh, five years from now and see how, how things are continuing to progress in Palo Alto. Thank you so much, Michelle, for your time and for your leadership in the city. Thank you. So that's really interesting. Another thing I want to talk to you about, Shauna, before we move on to the weekend review and everything else on this show, is um, something that uh, we've been doing that you've been spearheading as uh, in the run up to our Verge 18 event this October in Oakland, which is the host committee for that event. It's the first time we've ever done that. And uh, this coming Monday, uh, the 12th, we will be convening them in the Green Biz office here at 350 Franco Gallo Plaza. And um, I think it's going to be a really interesting conversation. What can you tell us about that? 
Yes, well, we are very excited about bringing our Verge Conference to Oakland this fall. We've had a great rundown in the Silicon Valley and are excited about being in Oakland. With the, with the host committee, we've convened a, a fantastic group of almost about 20, 20 folks representing, um, you know, in the Verge spirit, a very diverse group of leaders that are, are mostly rooted here in Oakland and, and, and the East Bay, ranging from Oakland Mayor Libby Schaff to senior, um, uh, the VP of Operations for Sustainability for Kaiser, which is based here in Oakland, a number of um, you know executives from some of the leading environmental and social justice organizations um, based in, in in the East Bay, and you know next Monday's meeting is really the spirit of that is to bring together this diverse group and kind of tap into their perspectives about how we can most effectively and with as much inspiration as possible deliver on our goals with Verge, which in addition to producing a great event, are to really elevate the best. Of and the brightest of Oakland and, and, and the Bay Area and, um, and, and to engage the community in addition to making a positive impact. Well, I know it's going to be a great event because you're going to be facilitating it. But the the last thing I want to ask you, and then I promise before this is turned into the Shauna Rapp Report show with Joel McCower, which is fine, I love it, is is we just put out uh, the call for uh, videos this week for nominations for Verge Accelerate for our Hawaii event. And I think uh, we'd be remiss without plugging that. Yes, our Verge Accelerate program, which has really been a cornerstone of our Verge event since its inception, is continuing to grow, and that includes um, being a, a core part of the program at our Verge Hawaii event, which will take place in Honolulu this June. We just opened the nomination window, um, so we're accepting accepting applications for from early stage companies who are working across the Verge universe of energy, buildings, transportation. Um, in the case of Hawaii, we're really focusing on, on infrastructure infrastructure and cybersecurity. And so uh, entrepreneurs who are interested in potentially getting some main stage time and connecting with potential partners and investors um, can check out the, the Accelerate page on our Verge Hawaii website. There's a basically a short little video explaining how you do it and submit your nomination. And we're excited to hopefully get a, a, a bigger and broader and higher quality pool of, of applicants than ever before and elevate some really interesting, uh, really, really interesting solutions at our Verge Hawaii in, uh, in June. Well, great, Shauna. Let's now move into the Week in Review. So this week, we had two really interesting stories on the topic of deforestation and business. Specifically, how do you get to, to zero deforestation? Uh, and who's going to pay for that? What, what's the role of banks and, and, and others? So the first story came from uh, Rod Taylor, who's the global director of the forest program at WRI, the World Resources Institute. And, and he's looking at how the deforestation free movement has emerged uh, as a response to the rapid loss of forests globally and to the loss of the, those services that those forests uh, provide as they're being cleared to open up areas of production for commodities like palm oil, soy, beef, rubber, and cocoa. And, and how this creates a conflict over land and drives climate change, species extinction, droughts, diseases, all that good stuff. And that hundreds of companies, from the producers to the traders and retailers, are now committing to remove deforestation from their supply chains. That is, only work on land or buy products, commodities, from land that has been responsibly forested. So uh, this is just, I think, it's been going on for a while, but this movement really is picking up steam. The, the, even the notion of zero deforestation, of, of committing to that goal, as you know, naming that at zero as the goal, we're seeing a, a lot more uh, interest in that. So I think this is a, just a really great sort of snapshot of this uh, movement. And then the other piece, uh, which Business Green talks about uh, how banks are starting to come together uh, to look at deforestation because deforestation and the overall degradation of forests account for about 15% of the world's annual greenhouse gas uh, emissions, according to CDP. And companies are now under pressure to tackle this, and a lot of them are environmental activist groups are now on the doorstep of companies that are being seen to either fund or support deforestations just by buying the, the products that come from those. And more pressure from stakeholders like external investors and company board members. Uh, they're all sort of looking at how do you 
iron out this uh, these supply chain kinks and and keep uh, you know, companies on their ambitious targets. And so the banks are stepping up. There's a group of banks that came together uh, uh, a few years ago to uh, the Joint Pact to achieve net deforestation by 2020. That, and there's been progress along that. But the, more recently, there's a, uh, a new uh, group that has come together. It's a new platform that was created by the NGO called Global Canopy to, to help educate financial institutions on their exposure to risk in what's called the soft commodity supply chain. Those are the commodities like palm oil, uh, soy, timber, and cattle. And so uh, this script, it's called script, it's an it's a acronym for a soft commodity risk platform, um, is, is just up in the, in the past week or so. And I think it's just a really great example of a tool to help companies behind the scenes like banks that are you know several layers down from the consumer, the end user of products, to, to do some really hard and important work to assess and, and figure out how they can, what their, what their risk is, first of all, and then how to mitigate it. Joel, one thing I'm curious about, I heard you talk very clearly about the sort of investors and stakeholders putting pressure. Certainly, there is a climate risk imperative. I didn't hear you talk about consumers and customer demand at all. Is that playing into the progress in this movement? I don't think in most product categories that consumers are aware of the deforestation risk. I mean, if you look at the if you look at the products, you know, you're talking about well, anything that has palm or oil or so, soy, which are hundreds and hundreds of of, of food products, uh, timber, which is obviously you know timber and and I guess paper pulp and things like that, and then cattle, so beef and uh, primarily beef and a little bit of leather. So I, none of those products really. Uh, market or deforestation because consumers aren't aware of it. So this is one of those uh, those battles, I guess, uh, that that's being fought below the consumer level at the supply chain level by the uh, activist groups, the environmental groups that uh, whose job it is to protect the endangered species, endangered lands, in some cases endangered peoples. To uh, and and they see all of that. Uh, in the deforestation challenge, and and you know, obviously, as I said before, that tied to climate change, it becomes a big part of the climate uh, mitigation puzzle. And and as uh, we've seen from from books like Drawdown, it actually comes very much part of the the climate solution. I don't think we're going to be hearing that. I don't just I just don't see. The anyone marketing, you know, deforestation-free burgers. <laughs> well, you know, it's interesting. It makes me think I, I saw recently that China had 60,000 soldiers go to plant trees. I mean, thinking about not only the mitigation aspect, but also the regeneration. I mean, I wonder what the next, the next edge when we're having this conversation five, 10 years from now, how companies are thinking about not only ensuring they don't have deforestation across their supply chains, but how they're optimizing for products or working with suppliers that are actively regenerating for us. Is that something you're seeing any businesses uh, pay attention to at this point? Well, what, what we're seeing is that, is, as we often see with environmental problems or business opportunities, specifically uh, the business opportunity around uh, the you know, planting trees at, or replanting trees at scale. And, you know, just got one word to say about that. Drones uh, and and how drones are now being deployed. There's a, a firm called Biocarbon Engineering, a startup that has a, a drones that can plant as many as a hundred thousand trees in a single day. <laughs> it's a lot of trees. I'm not sure if that's one drone or a swarm of them, but uh, obviously they can come in and um, plant a fairly large swath of land with with trees. And of course, it takes years for those trees to grow, but they're getting the technology behind that of where to put them, what kinds of trees, how to plant them, how to care for them, and then how to uh, measure and anticipate the carbon reducing or carbon sequestering uh, ability of those trees. I mean, that's where there's a big business opportunity. And I think that... Um, that companies that have significant forestry footprints are going to, for a long time, some of them have been buying and protecting forests. Apple did that. Uh, in the last couple of years, we've talked about that on this program. But I think more and more companies are going to start, look, how can we be part of the of the tree planting solution? That's not the, you know, just tr planting trees. I know you know this, Shauna, does not mitigate 
uh, clear-cutting somewhere else where you're not only clear-cutting the land and possibly causing erosion erosion or development uh, and, you know, with that possible diseases for the indigenous people who've been living there. I mean, th- there's a lot of other things that happen besides losing a tree and, and its ability to sequester carbon. So it's this is a, there's a whole social piece of this that needs to be considered. It's not simply a technocratic solution of plant more trees, um, but we will be seeing a lot more of that, and that is clearly the technology for doing that is really uh, just now coming into its own. Well, speaking of trees and supply chains, it actually makes me think about one of the stories that we ran this week that was was particularly moving for me. I think maybe I've got the 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 lens on still fresh off the heels of our Green Biz eighteen event where I had the opportunity to co facilitate a supply chain transparency challenge with my colleague John Davies. But um, a really interesting story this week about how Cliff Bar is has has really influenced one of their key suppliers, State Logistics. Now, Cliff Bar has really since its in- Inception built its brand around, in fact, think like a tree is their motto. You know, they've been um, deeply committed to sustainability, to wholesomeness, you know, really making clear to their customers that it strives to do no harm. Um, But over the last couple of years, they've really upped their game, not only in their own operations around, um, you know, 100% renewable energy, extensive efficiency, being zero waste, but now they're really spreading their tendrils into their supply chains. And we ran a story this week. That was by Kristen James, uh, who's the director of California Policy Programs uh, for Ceres, um, about the work that Cliff Bar has done with one of their key suppliers, State Logistics. State Logistics, you may or may not have heard of before. They're a big third-party provider of warehousing, packaging, transportation, distribution, not the kind of companies that you usually think of really upping their game on sustainability. But but there's a great story about the way in which Cliff Bar has really incented that. And now it's it's taken, as this article uh, emphasizes, you know, a decade-long relationship of the right balance of friendly nudging and kind of kicking them in the tush a bit. But but they've gotten there, and and State Logistics recently, you know, committed to Cliff Bar's 100% renewable energy program. They're you know, in terms of where they're sourcing their energy, they're now moving towards waste-free operations. And you know, what I thought was especially interesting, besides that, that's an awesome story that it's happening in and of itself, is the way that this piece kind of tells the larger story about the value of greening supply chains. I mean, logistics companies don't exactly have to win the hearts of consumers. You know, they they instead make, uh, oftentimes will make sustainability improvement decisions around, you know, business efficiency. You know, uh, there's even a quote in the piece, is, you know, the one of the senior leaders says, we understand that clean energy isn't just good for the environment, it's also good for our bottom line. And we know that. But what this piece kind of unpacks is how since making those improvements, there have been this whole spectrum of unexcited, unexpected side benefits um, in that they're attracting new customers who also want greener supply chains. And so I just, I think this is really a, a poignant singular story in this larger story that we're seeing, you know, many companies Walmart, Pepsi, Kellogg, Apple have long been on this path of pushing their supply chains, usually in response to consumer demand. But now we're starting to see how companies themselves can be um, really climate and, and, and environmental activists across their supply chains, as, as with this case. Yeah, I really love the story too, because it, it really epitomizes, and you, you sort of said this, the, 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 sort of the quiet, behind-the-scenes, long uh, uh, duration uh, work that it takes for a, a company, a, even a brand like Cliff Bar, to move one of its key suppliers, and really, you know, of course, that supplier is working for lots of other companies too. But to to, to work with them to to make some changes that this you know, company probably wouldn't have made on their own, and as you said, it takes a long time. It takes a you know both carrots and sticks. Um, and and uh, kudos to, to Cliff Bar for for not only uh, doing it and you know persisting and and ultimately prevailing, but also for sharing how they did that. So I, yeah. I, I agree. That's a that's a great story. I I riffed on this a little bit in the Verge Weekly newsletter this week, but you know I think a key piece of this too is to really step back and reflect on sort of. Sp- 
spheres of influence, right? And the, the, the extent to which we or companies or organizations or cities for that matter conceptualize where the boundaries of their spheres of influence are often, more often than not, it's, it's where we have direct influence. And I think this movement of companies really advancing sustainability by working with their suppliers is a great example of the, the, the almost exponential potential positive benefit that can come, um, impact that one can make by expanding the, how we conceive of our own spheres of influence. Well, another sphere of influence, last one I want to talk about from this past week is an article um, by Michael Holder over at Business Green uh, talking about um, how companies and investors can navigate the ESG disclosure maze. The ESG, of course, is the environmental, social, and governance factors that are uh, increasingly part of boardroom decision-making and investor risk analysis. For a long time, these uh, ESG was something that was paid attention to only by the so-called socially responsible investors. Um, and as we wrote about in, in the 2018 State of Green Business Report, if you, if you haven't already downloaded from GreenBiz, I highly recommend it. It's free. Uh, we wrote about the fact that ESG has moved into the mainstream and it's not what we used to call socially responsible investors are now just investors. And so there's a lot of effort taking place to uh, bring ESG into the center. It, we're, it already, you know, some places it is, in some places it isn't. And, and at the same time, how do companies report on ESG and climate risk? And how much data should they disclose? What are investors actually looking for? What are the rating agencies and green indices uh, looking for and all of that? Um, because there's there's no single ESG and climate risk disclosure instruction manual. And, and as a result, there's no standard way that companies uh, are approaching this. Um, but that is... is you know, destined to change because there's a number of groups looking to to make sense out of all of this, and uh, we've reported on on some of them from SASB to the the TCFD, the Task Force on Climate Related Disclosure Risks, that are all trying to standardize uh, this kind of reporting. So I think uh, you know what Michael writes about here is just a good look at uh, some of the latest findings on that and some of the latest efforts. So Joel, you mentioned at the outset that you're in Anaheim this week. What are you up to down there? I'm going to Disneyland. Uh, well, I can kind of see it from my hotel, but I'll, and I'll be within a few blocks. But I'm here uh, at the Natural Products Expo West. This is a massive trade show. I think they get like 80,000 people coming over the, the course of this weekend, the coming weekend. Uh, from the natural products industry, so think about everything you'd see in like all well, the Whole Foods times, you know, fifty companies and brands, and and you know, and then all the you know supplemental things that uh, go around that for the, that just retailers do, and lots and lots more. This is one of the big annual trade shows that it fills uh, the Anaheim Convention Center, which is very very big, and then spills out beyond that. And as part of that. On Wednesday was the uh, second annual Climate Day at Expo West. And like I did last year, the first cl uh, Climate Day event, I hosted, sort of emceed Climate Day this year, uh, bringing uh, up to stage uh, a whole range of really interesting people talking about you know, carbon farming and uh, just how to take on, you know, climate change, uh, and uh, companies like Cliff Bar you mentioned, uh, General Mills, and uh, Ben and Jerry's, and uh, so many others, uh, and then uh, topped off with a couple of keynotes. Uh, one from an amazing woman named Catherine Hayhoe, from who's a climate scientist at Texas Tech University. Uh, it happens to be also an evangelical Christian, lives in West Texas, and spends a lot of time talking about, uh, you know, how do you talk about climate change to everybody? Uh, that's interesting. I hope to get her to one of our events soon. So she gave a talk, and then I had her in conversation with Yostine Solheim, who's the president of Ben & Jerry's, and Ben & Jerry's has been doing a lot of, of, of climate advocacy for a long, long time. And then uh, Gina McCarthy, the former EPA administrator who uh, 
basically turned out the lights on the EPA at the last day of the Obama administration, gave the final keynote. And, and you know, again, really interesting listening to her and her perspective, particularly given the past 15 months of, of well, you know what. Joel, how many how many years did you say the, the expo's been happening and that you've been going? Uh, the expo's been happening, oh, I don't know, for, for decades. Um, I've only gone a few times before this. The Climate Day uh, is, uh, is, is a relatively new thing. Um, and it's it's put on by a, a group uh, called the Climate Collaborative, which I think it, it just deserves a few words of its own. Um, it's about you know, bringing together the natural products industry to reverse climate change. I thought you'd appreciate that language, not just uh, you know mitigate or level off, but it, the, their tagline is leveraging the power of the natural products industry to reverse climate change. And it was brought, created by a, a small group of actually women, including uh, my good friend Nancy Hirschberg, who was the uh, head of sustainability at Stonyfield Farm for a long, long time, uh, and who was just one of the, I think, great corporate activists, I'd have to call her. I'm not sure how she'd call herself. But, they, but she and a group of others put together uh, a, a, basically a framework for companies to commit to, and there's nine attributes on agriculture, energy efficiency, food waste, forestry, packaging, policy, renewable energy, uh, short-lived climate pollutants, and transportation. So it's kind of a verge conference in in and of itself. And that's what Wednesday was all about, is is having the companies, about 500 in the room, uh, coming together and talking about that. And uh, and I, I, I Spent a few minutes, pull over to the side, Erin uh, Callahan, who is the executive director of Climate Collaborative, to talk a little bit about uh, what's going on here. So Climate Collaborative is a little over a year old or so. Uh, give people a sense of what it is, who who are the members, what you're trying to do. Yeah. Well, we're exactly a year old today, exactly. It is our birthday. We launched a year ago um, at Expo West 2017. As you know, we're lucky, lucky to have you as our master of ceremonies for two years running now. Uh, so we're a project of the Sustainable Food Trade Association and OSC Squared. Uh, And we launched a year ago really to um, answer a call in the industry um, for addressing a gap in expertise and a collaborative platform for companies to come together and act on climate change. Uh, You know, this is a progressive industry that has helped move the needle on organic, animal welfare, fair trade, non-GMO, all of these issues. Um, But climate change, which is arguably the biggest issue facing a lot of these companies, especially this year with natural disasters in California, destroying homes of some of these companies and their supply chains and hurricanes in the Caribbean. Um, you know, they're really feeling the impacts of climate change within their operations as individuals and in their supply chains. Um, but there was no platform or set of expertise to help them in implementing those practices in their company. So that's what we sought to do when we launched last year. And we really do two things. We keep it simple and we have a tight, um, tight focused mission. Uh, we want to inspire action within the industry on climate change and we want to support companies in getting there. So we invite companies to make commitments um, to food waste, to packaging, to transportation, agriculture, the key emissions drivers for most companies in the natural products industry. And then we support them and starting to implement those projects. So um, webinars, case studies, um, connections to partners and resources. Um, So we're trying to serve as that connector so that they can really build a knowledge base and get the tools they need to start reducing their footprint. You would think that of all all the sectors out there that the natural products uh, industry, which deals with organic and healthy eating and, and, and well lifestyles, wouldn't need a lot of schooling on environmental issues and climate in particular. What are some of the big challenges or barriers uh, that you're finding need to break through to get companies in this sector truly engaged? Yeah, that's such a good point. And you're absolutely right that the buy-in is totally there. And right as we were launching, we did a survey that showed that companies do understand within this industry the urgency of climate action, but they do lack the resource base and the knowledge base. We did a programming survey last fall where we kind of asked our committed company base, you know, what are your challenges? And it's resources, resources, resources. Um, so they get it. They just don't know how to start acting. And they don't know, you know, the the lack of expertise. These are small companies who often have very very tight profit margins, don't have sustainability departments like a lot of Fortune 500 companies do. So um, that's what we try to intervene is to provide them with stories of best practice, clarity on what they can be doing, and 
pathways to action um, that can help them get started on that journey. Because you're right, the buy-in is there. It's just the gap between understanding that they need to take action and understanding how to actually do that. And, and that's really what we've seen gain traction within the industry. It's almost like they were waiting for this. You know, we hit 200 companies today, which is double what we thought we'd get um, in our first year of operations. And uh, we did that because they were, they were ready. The will was absolutely there. And now they just needed the way. And so this is really an industry-led project. And yeah, we're really thrilled to see that progress. What you just described about uh, smaller companies without resources, but but with strong desires, um, really could be in any sector. And so I, I think, you know, that's a really important uh, yes. step you've taken. What, what have you learned about bringing, uh, engaging smaller companies in sustainability that might inure to other sectors? Yeah, that's a really good point as well. So, you know, in terms of the learning that could be applied to other sectors, I think it's the fact that these companies are living in a constantly risky environment as they're growing. So climate is a secondary priority at best. And so what we're trying to do is really make the case that this isn't just because they care about the planet and it's part of their mission. There really is business value in starting to think about um, these issues sooner than later. So, you know, any company who has a supply chain that is international or national is going to start being affected by climate change. A lot of these, I mean, these companies have smaller supply chains. They don't have thousands of suppliers. They have a few. And when they have disruptions due to hurricanes, due to natural disasters, they feel it a lot more quickly. So we're trying to make that case that there's a really strong consumer demand. Millennials increasingly care that 70% of them make purchasing decisions based on uh, sustainability and climate. Uh, So they care. Um, Supply chains are going to be affected. It's just a matter of when, if not if. And there's a real cost savings that companies can have from starting to look at these um, transitions that they can make toward better practices. Um, so, yes, there are there are barriers around costs, but if you start to get on the journey, there's real wins that you can have, too, around competitive advantage as you grow. So, two climate days down. Um, wh- where do you go from here? What is uh, the next move for Climate Collaborative? Yeah, well, you know, I'm thrilled that uh, we've got 550 people here today, but uh, there's uh, 80,000 people at Expo. So we've got a long way to go. So I think the biggest lesson for us is not to get complacent with where we are and for companies not to either. We've got a lot of work left to do if we really want to change behavior around how this industry approaches climate change. And we think that the industry is so well poised um, to take a leading role in changing how the food and ag sector approach climate change, but we've just got to keep pushing. So that's really the message we want companies to take home today. Well, thanks for all that pushing and uh, thanks for letting me be a part of it. Erin Callahan is director of the Climate Collaborative, part of the uh, Natural Food Pro- Natural Products Expo and uh, natural products industry. Thanks, Erin. Thank you. Hello, Heather Clancy here. Helen Clarkson this month celebrates her one-year anniversary as CEO of The Climate Group, a 14-year-old organization originally founded to help communicate the business case for companies to focus on climate mitigation and other environmental issues. Today, their mission is to help amplify and accelerate those efforts. It does this through three signature programs right now. They are the RE100, which is a group of companies that have committed to using 100% renewable power, the EV100, which is a campaign that highlights organizations transitioning to electric transportation alternatives by 2030, and the EP100, a program developed with the Alliance to Save Energy, featuring businesses that have pledged to double their energy productivity. You can read more about Helen's leadership philosophy and why she believes in the power of peer pressure in my profile, which is part of the ongoing Green Biz Big Green series. We use this column to feature NGO executives that have an explicit focus on forging strong corporate partnerships. I interviewed Helen twice for the article, and here's one of those conversations. Why is it more important than ever for corporate leadership? Um, I think there's a few reasons why corporate leadership is so important. I think the first thing is we're seeing their ability of companies, particularly when you bring them together to sort of shift and influence markets, particularly through um, sending a demand signal. So that's something we do with the RE100 campaign, which is um, the commitment of companies to get to 100% renewable energy. Um, when you bring all those companies together, we've got over 100 leading companies there from different areas of the world, from different sectors. That sends a really powerful demand signal um, to the market to say that there's this shift 
to renewable energy that's happening um, and sends a very sort of clear marker. Um, for us, the 100% bit of that is really important because if you said, well, you can all make a 90% commitment within a company, everyone thinks that what they are doing is, is within the 10%. So you think, oh, it doesn't really apply to me. If a company makes a commitment to 100%, then everyone has to do something. And what we see then is that companies tend to go faster than they said they would. I think lots of companies meet their target ahead of time or really meet aggressive targets they didn't think they could do. And then that adds to that signal um, and it sends a message back to governments and others that this is possible, that the shift is happening. And if you look at the sort of big international timetable that we've got in implementing Paris, you know, the next couple of years are absolutely critical. We're expecting or the Paris Agreement need this ratcheting of the commitments in 2020. And so you've got companies, you know, the world economy showing that they can do it, showing that they're ambitious and that what they want is clear policy signals. Then that adds to the confidence of governments to ratchet up their and uh, their NDCs, their uh, contributions they're making in Paris. So you've already addressed this a little bit, but what signals to you that a company is truly engaged, truly, really committed? I think there's different ways. So you see it when, when they make these 100% commitments. Um, that's a big thing. And I think what's critical there is if your company is going to make that, that sort of commitment, you can't just sign that off at the, you know, in the sustainability department. You're going to have to take that up to the CEO. Um, and we always need that top level sign off. Um, you see the board then having to get engaged and thinking, okay, how can we actually do it? So that's a really um, clear signal. And then we see some particular leaders signing up to one or more of these campaigns. That's not entirely straightforward either. So you think, oh, well, if they've made one commitment, then maybe there's a source of company that you know might do another. But actually, it's often very different parts of the business that are making, for example, a renewable energy commitment. It won't be the same to the business that's having to deliver an electric vehicle commitment. So that's when you're seeing that a lead, uh, that company really is leading, is seeing this in the round, understanding the business case and, and, and how to apply it. And so we're looking for those real leaders who start to want to make multiple commitments um, like this. And then you'll see that once they're doing that, they're starting to get the results. You'll see companies talking much more publicly about what they're doing um, and making quite big announcements um, about either how they're going to get there um, or sort of further projects that they're doing um, in this space. One more example I can give you is when companies start to then um, show leadership through using their influence and their networks. So we're seeing, so a good example, Apple, both Apple and Walmart are starting to engage along their supply chain. And that's another thing where you see that they are very committed and, and looking at their value networks, as it were. And what do you say to convince skeptics? Because I know there are skeptics. What what are the the arguments or factors that you use to convince a skeptic? Yeah, I think I think where one starts is the business case. It's not a moral case. You you need to start with the business case. And I wouldn't sort of sit down and point someone endlessly to the science. If there's doubts, then from business, it's going to be around the business case. So most people are saying, oh, you know, if they're skeptical it tends not to now be in the boardroom that people are skeptical about climate change. That feels like it's really shifted over the last few years. It's much more, well, is this too expensive for my business? And I think there it's about really getting into the business case and actually showing what peers are doing. And in that sense, I think that people are much more likely to listen to their peers than listen to, you know, an outsider. And there, it's, you know, how do you make sure um, that those voices are getting across? So when we do events, um, yes, I'm often on stage talking, but I'll be sitting alongside someone from a business who can really give examples. Um, we do a lot of work um, with Johnson Controls and, uh, you know, Clay Nestler from Johnson Controls is a real advocate of the EP100 campaign. And he can give really live examples from within the company of why this works for them. Um, and that's very, very compelling, I think, to business. But, uh, you know, an NGO saying you should do this and there's a worry that we're getting into a kind of moral case there. What is your strategic priority or what is the climate group's strategic priority for the next 12 months? Oh, we have a lot. Um, well, we have a, a, a lot of ambition um, and, and then a few real uh, kind of strategic priorities. So for us, um, continuing to build out the 100 campaigns um, that, we, that we work on, so RE100, EP100, which is around energy productivity, 
growing EV100 electric vehicles, but also starting to see well, how do the companies that we have already signed up achieve their goals faster? How do we get companies to sign up to more than one of those? So starting to link those together and, and sort of push out where is real leadership. So we're going to continue to work on those and use those as a mechanism for driving the clean energy transition. Um, and then the other, which is less about the corporate uh, world, but we also are secretariat of the Under Two Coalition, which is now over 200 jurisdictions, sub-national governments who've signed up um, to ambitious climate action. Um, so increasingly, we're working with that group of governments to um, push the climate agenda and really help them. So the work with them is around them setting 2050 pathways, improving their measurements and their reporting, um, and also working on policy learning between the different jurisdictions. So those two things, corporate action and subnational government action, are what the climate group is very focused on. A lot of that will come together at the um, Global Climate Action Summit in California in September, which is a moment when all non-state actors will come together and show the level of ambition, the level of action that's out there. Again, send a message to national governments around the um, Paris process and how we can achieve those goals. One of the big happenings at Green Biz Group this week was that we welcomed a new member of the Green Biz team, Katie Fehrenbacher, a veteran reporter in clean tech and energy and transportation, has joined us as a senior writer and analyst covering transportation mobility. And I uh, just thought I'd take an opportunity to uh, welcome Katie Fehrenbacher. Here, here she is. Hi, Katie. Hi, Joel. So happy to be here. We can't begin to tell you how happy we are. Uh, for people who don't, I've known you maybe 10 years and from your early days and or earlier days, certainly as a reporter covering tech in general and then later clean tech and breaking a lot of stories on uh, Tesla, for example, when you were at GigaOM and, and then working at Fortune and now here at Greenbiz, fill in a little bit more of the backstory about sort of what got you here. Um, I've been a journalist in Silicon Valley for almost 15 years, um, and I started my career in specifically technology journalism. So Red Herring was a big magazine back in the day. Um, my first journalism job was at a Japanese newspaper called the Yomiri Shimbun in their Silicon Valley Bureau. And then I also worked at Engadget, which was like an early gadget blog. And so I covered a lot of companies in the mobile space, the web space. Back in the day uh, when I covered the mobile industry, there was no iPhone or Google mobile products then. So uh, it was a very different market. And then I joined GigaOM in 2006. Um, Ohm Malik founded that company and I was the first employee there. And then about a year into working at GigaOM, I decided, you know what, I'm getting pretty tired of covering kind of straight tech news. I really want to get into the kind of green tech space. And that was 2007. And if anyone has been following green tech since back then, that was a little bit of a almost the beginning of a bubble that was happening in Silicon Valley. So a lot of the big um, venture capital firms started to cover green tech then like Kleiner Perkins and Coastal Ventures and and a lot of folks. And there was this huge investment in 2008. And, you know, green was going to be the next big thing for Silicon Valley. And now you can see that that unfortunately didn't happen. Um, the venture capitalists uh, didn't make a ton of money and a lot of them receded from that. But I, alongside them, kind of jumped into covering that sector. And then when Giga went under, I um, joined Fortune magazine and I covered green tech there. So how did you get in interested in transportation mobility? Because that sort of really was a focus of yours at Giga Ohm and, and, and probably continues to be and certainly will be here at Greenbiz. Yeah, I've been following the transformation of transportation for a while. Um, San Francisco, where I live, is kind of one of the ground zeros for this transformation um, in terms of, you know, Uber and ride and car sharing, but also in the electrification of vehicles. So Tesla and, you know, Proterra and all these companies um, are kind of started in this area. And just kind of following the technology disruption when it comes to transportation. Um, I myself, I live in San Francisco and I didn't have a car for a long time. So I was an avid user of a lot of these services. And I think just transportation is going to change rapidly over the next, um, you know, five to 10 years. And so I think it's just a fascinating area. And what are you driving? 
I am currently driving a Subaru Crosstrek hybrid. Um, so they actually retired the hybrid the year after I bought it, but that is what I'm driving. I would have loved to have bought an electric car, but I felt like my options were just a little limited. You know, maybe I would have bought the Bolt or the Volts, or I would have loved to buy a Model 3, but, you know, not available yet. So what are you excited about in this realm in the transportation, mobility? Um, what do you think, what's on your plate? So I guess two areas I'm particularly excited about. One is the electrification of vehicles and the other is automation. Um, so self-driving cars and, you know, San Francisco again is one of the kind of ground zeros for this whole movement around self-driving cars. Um, you know, California just a couple weeks ago um, removed the restriction for having a having to have a person in the car alongside the self-driving car. So, you know, it's rapidly happening here. So that's something I plan to track very closely uh, for GreenBiz. And how about the mobility side? What does that mean to you? I think just the term mobility, you know, it's a little bit of jargon, but it kind of, to me, is this um, intersection of vehicles, but as well as um, being able to kind of the last mile, like move around at kind of any time you have these different options. So say I want to take the BART here, this, the different mobility options would be, you know, oh, I can take an Uber to the BART and then get here. I can take an Uber pool. I can take a jump bike. I can take you know, one of the Ford branded bikes outside my house, um, you know, one of these electric scooters, there's all these different options. Um, so I think that kind of mobility is this rise of um, different, you know, transportation services that were never possible f- before. Well, it's all a um, moving target um, and lots more to come, but they're really excited to have you here. Uh, thanks so much. For th- not the last we'll hear from you at all in Green Biz and certainly on this podcast, Katie Fehrenbacher, our new senior writer and an- analyst. Thank you. I'm so excited to be here. And that's our 350 podcast for this week. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350, and you'll find more about the organization, stories, and events we've mentioned in this episode. And while you're there, look for a link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from GreenBiz events. You can hit us up by email at 350 at greenbiz.com. We always love to hear from you. GreenBiz 350's director is Stephanie Joyce. Elsa Wenzel is our managing editor. Thanks again to Shauna Rappaport for filling in this week. Heather Clancy will resurface next week from her diving trip. Until then, from all of us here at GreenBiz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. Thank you.